This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the June 30th edition of Global Dialogue, the International Affairs Speakers Program of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm Patrick Ryan. Tonight we have a special program that might well be guided by the maxim, my interest is in the future because I'm going to spend the rest of my life there. That quote of early 1900s inventor Charles Kettering was one of the few kind things about the business of forecasting we could find. Since we're all going to spend the rest of our lives in an increasingly complex and challenging future world, we've invited three distinguished panelists from the Office of Policy Planning at the State Department to talk to us about foreign policy through a long lens. We'll explore overall foreign policy goals and priorities of the department and what the world in front of us looks like from Foggy Bottom, the center of American diplomacy. We'll be mindful that there's a lot on the to-do list at state nowadays, so we might spend a little time looking at the here and now, but we'll try to also get in some prognostications. A note about the Office of Policy Planning. It was created in 1947 by George Kennan at the request of Secretary of State George C. Marshall. The policy planning staff serves as a source of independent policy analysis and advice for the Secretary of State. The staff's mission is to take a longer term strategic view of global trends and frame recommendations for the Secretary to advance U.S. interests and American values. With us this evening from the Policy Planning Office are Martha Sims, whose portfolio includes counterterrorism, diplomatic security, and Western Europe. She was previously special advisor to the counterterrorism coordinator, and before working at the State Department, she was on the House Homeland Security Committee under Chairman Michael McCall, working on foreign policy and terrorism screening policy. Shawnish Underwood covers NATO, Nordic Baltics, and South European issues. Shaunish previously served in the Press and Public Outreach Office in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs. Colonel William Shaum is a U.S. Army Senior Service Advisor to the Department of State. He previously served as the Chief of the Office of Defense Cooperation in the Republic of Turkey. Prior duties included extensive assignments across the Middle East and in stateside assignments focused on that region. Now, the bios here are brief in the interest of time, but you can see their extensive accomplishments on our website, tnwac.org. Additional thanks to Irina Karamanova for, at the State Department, who was instrumental in assembling tonight's terrific panel. Our moderator this evening is Professor Thomas Schwartz, Professor of Political Science and Professor of European Studies, Vanderbilt University. His considerable academic credentials are also on the website, but I'll mention here that he is the author of Henry Kissinger and American Power, a political biography to be published in September 2020. We're looking forward to a great read about a fascinating person and period in American diplomacy. So that's the distinguished panel we've prepared for you this evening. Before we start, we have a couple of administrative items. First, you can start now to add your questions to the Q&A tab at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Second, we welcome you becoming a member of the World Affairs Council or contributing to support our global affairs awareness programs. Just visit tnwac.org to help the cause. 
May I suggest a $20 donation, much below the cost of dinner and a movie. Lastly, our guests tonight will be as forthcoming as possible in their remarks and responses to your questions. However, please note that the content of this session is off the record. We will begin with about 20 minutes of remarks from the panel, followed by 20 minutes of conversation guided by Professor Schwartz, and then about 15 minutes of your questions. And now, Martha Sims. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's great to be here today to represent the State Department and the Office of Policy Planning, where we three work. Um, so to uh, reiterate, as Pat said, we're going to speak for about 20 to 25 minutes. Um, then we'll open up the conversation to Q&A for the remaining period. So uh, we're talking about the future today, but um, our remarks focus uh, to some extent on the present, but looking into the next decade and what we think it will look like. Um, and it may come as no surprise that we think that the future is going to look quite a bit um, like the present. So we'd like to describe the world that the United States um, will be facing. We'll start off with a brief overview of this administration's approach to foreign policy, and then outline the major challenges and opportunities that we currently face and how we will be dealing with these issues over the next decade. Uh, this administration approaches the world with the goal of putting American people, U.S. businesses, and U.S. foreign policy interests first. This is the meaning of American first foreign policy. This doesn't mean America alone, however. Most of the challenges we face cannot be handled alone, even if we wanted to. But we cannot put the interests of supranational or multilateral institutions over, over those of our own. This administration has been guided by a belief that nation states are the most stable and legitimate actors on the world stage. They are the only source of democratic legitimacy. Governments have to serve the interests of the people they represent, and this administration is committed to serving the American people first. But this also means cooperation with others, and by working together as nation states within existing international structures, we will be able to create a more free, secure, and prosperous world. So on to the challenges that we face and will continue to face over the next decade. The American public ha has become accustomed to thinking about US national security threats as stemming from the Middle East or Afghanistan. They typically involve foreign wars and terrorists trying to harm Americans. Most Americans are less familiar with the unique threats posed by China. This is intentional. China has been quietly executing a strategy to tip the balance of international levers in its favor taking advantage of our free and open system to do so. Of course, jihadist terrorism remains a threat, but it is no longer the primary threat that it represented in the decade and a half after 9-11. Instead, we are recognizing an attempt by China to displace the United States as the world's major power. And when we say China, we are of course referring to the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. It is the Chinese people who are being deprived of their freedom and dignity under this autocratic regime, and we empathize with them. Over the past decade, the US has tried to expand cooperation with China as a way to bring it into the international system. The intention was good, but in doing so, previous administrations too often acquiesced to Chinese demands on our longtime ally, Taiwan, and we downplayed flagrant human rights abuses, such as the massacre in Tiananmen Square. America did less than it should have when China bullied its neighbors, Vietnam and the Philippines, a US treaty ally. And we were caught off guard when China claimed the entire South China Sea. In the words of Secretary Pompeo, these bad outcomes were all too predictable. They were predictable byproducts of dealing with a secretive regime that doesn't respect fairness, the rule of law, and reciprocity. 
The Trump administration's national security strategy has given expression to a growing consensus about the real threat that the CCP, CCP poses to US businesses, the US military, and indeed the entire international system. In the economic sphere, the CCP seeks to weaken US businesses through systematic IP theft. They demand that companies self-censor and hand over key business secrets to continue operating in the Chinese market. Tech companies are required to give the CCP access to data on Chinese citizens. They pressure our film and entertainment industry to avoid criticisms of China. What's more, this heavy-handed behavior is moving beyond China. Increasingly, US companies cannot criticize the CCP on US soil or European companies on European soil. We've all heard the stories about the NBA apologizing for its players' comments or Chinese threats to European governments who criticize their coronavirus response. China furthermore uses finance to gain leverage internationally. Its foreign direct investment and infrastructure investments have saddled parts of Africa, Europe, and Latin America with unsustainable levels of debt. China's Belt and Road Initiative is part of an effort to, to create leverage globally by investing state assets in infrastructure projects in countries that are in untenable political or economic situations. These debts then come in handy later when the CCP needs a vote in its favor at the UN or demands silence on blatant misdeeds like the sale of shoddy PPE equipment. Militarily, we've seen one of the biggest and fastest arms buildups in modern history. The PLA's capabilities far exceed what is needed for defensive purposes. China seeks to dominate not only its region, but to develop asymmetric capabilities to prevent the United States from engaging in the Indo-Pacific. It lays claim to the South China Sea and the Strait of Taiwan in contravention of international freedom of the seas. According to CSIS, China's defense budget ranged between 6 and 8% of its GDP since 2016. By comparison, U.S. defense budget was about 3.4% of U.S. GDP in 2019. But perhaps more pernicious is the CCP's manipulation of uh, diplomacy and multilateral institutions. In China, our diplomats, journalists, and academics are strictly limited in what they can do and with whom they may speak. More broadly, China seeks to make multilateral institutions, such as the UN, work only in its favor. It does so not merely by seeking its own advantage within these institutions, but by undermining the institutions themselves and using tactics that are contrary to the rules of the international order to do so. The CCP fears that these institutions pose a threat to its ideology, and so it seeks preemptively to ensure that multilaterals validate its authoritarian system. It succeeded most recently by pressuring the World Health Organization to delay the declaration of a pandemic until March 11th, weeks after the outbreak spread globally, and two months after WHO officials had visited Beijing where they celebrated transparency from the CCP's top leadership. China limits the access of its citizens to any news outside of state-backed outlets. It seeks to subvert outlets that criticize the CCP overseas, particularly in its own backyard in places such as Taiwan and Hong Kong. Beyond the Indo-Pacific, the party's intelligence agencies, the United Work Front, which is a Chinese external influence unit, and its propaganda outlets have embarked on a global campaign to change public opinion in favor of Beijing. Finally, China continues to commit human, right, human rights abuses against its citizens, from the camps in Xinjiang to the people of Hong Kong to those Chinese citizens who tried to raise the alarm about COVID-19. So in sum, competition with China is a high priority for this administration and for Secretary Pompeo. And we have sought to better understand the threats that China poses so that we are best positioned to both counter and compete against it 
in this and in future administrations. And we're doing so by trying to enforce the rules and norms of trade. We're trying to level the playing field for US businesses in China. And we're building up the capacity of other friendly regional allies to lessen their dependence on Chinese investment. So my colleague, Shanish, will build on some of these steps in the second half of our remarks um, and discuss the Indo-Pacific a little bit more. But first, we're gonna turn to the next um, lesser but equally challenging threat from Russia. So I'm sure uh, folks here are um, a bit more familiar with Soviet history perhaps than Chinese history. But uh, similarly, in the same way that we were a bit naive about China, we were also probably a bit too optimistic that Russia would fundamentally change after 1989. Um, under Russia's current leader, former KGB agent, whose name I probably don't need to uh, remind everyone of, uh, Russia uses foreign policy and disinformation to distract its people from the failures of its liberal government and its economic weaknesses. It does this by invading countries, Georgia in 2008, Ukraine's Crimea and the Donbass in 2014, and it does this in violation of the UN Charter. It acts as though the Central Asian countries were still subordinate territories of the Soviet Union. It is operating increasingly beyond its borders in the Middle East, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, with the goal of displacing the United States and advancing its own economic interests, regardless of the implications for democratic governments and humanitarian crises. One only has to look at Syria to gain a picture of Russia's influence overseas. Russia also flagrantly manipulates international rules and norms to its own benefit. Russia is frequently in violation of international and bilateral commitments. That's the reason that the United States withdrew from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, and the Open Skies Treaty more recently. By turning a blind eye to the flouting of these agreements, we indicate that rules don't really matter and that we aren't serious about following them. So we must hold Russia to account by refusing to cooperate with their deception. Like China, Russia uses digital tools to undermine the West. It runs a sophisticated disinformation operation to foment civil unrest and turn citizens against one another and democratic institutions. This is a threat to all of us in the United States, any political party, and any institution. Secretary Pompeo has made clear that we will challenge these abuses by working with allies to uh, establish deterrence through groupings such as NATO, the G7, the D10, Democracies 10, and others. The U.S. is also helping those countries most vulnerable to Russian aggression, such as Ukraine and Georgia. Um, we're helping them stand up for themselves with lethal military assistance. We're working with the Baltic countries to build uh, more sophisticated digital defenses to withstand cyber attacks. We are providing funding and investment to our Mediterranean friends so that they are not vulnerable to China's manipulation of energy supplies. I should note that this administration has been successful in convincing NATO members to increase their defense spending. This is the result of persistent diplomacy making the case for burden sharing. However, we still have to face the unfortunate fact that even some of our closest European allies still underestimate the Russian threat um, to their own security. Um, cooperating with Moscow, for example, on Nord Stream 2, which the US has opposed along with the Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, uh, Slovakia, Romania, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Croatia. Um, but now let's turn to the threats from Iran and North Korea. Iran has a 40-year history of unprovoked aggression towards the U.S. and its neighbors. They have tortured their own people and have murdered Americans in Iraq and Lebanon. They have provided safe haven to members of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda since 9-11. Their quest to develop nuclear and ballistic capabilities 
poses a fundamental threat to U.S. national security. Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, threatens freedom of navigation and trade in the Persian Gulf. It trains and directs its members to use asymmetric tactics in the Middle East and around the world, such as by firing missiles at Saudi Arabia and the UAE. The IRGC harasses U.S. Navy ships in the Persian Gulf. It arms proxies in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and the Palestinian territories, even Afghanistan and Pakistan, in an attempt to create a Shiite crescent uh, of power from Tehran to Beirut. Iran's proxies have made peaceful life difficult for the people of the Middle East, many of whom seek to rebuild their societies after years of war. They prop up unpopular governments in Iraq and Lebanon, and while Iran's government is focused on its foreign military operations, it also brutally suppresses its own people who have protested repeatedly for basic freedoms and improved social conditions. Similarly, North Korea refuses to give up its desire for nuclear and ballistic weapons with the goal of enriching its own leadership at extreme cost to its citizens. It also continues to deploy asymmetric attacks against the West, particularly cyber attacks and targeted assassinations, which is one reason that North Korea was redesignated as a state sponsor of terror, an SST, at the beginning of this administration. The US approach to Iran and North Korea has taken the form of maximum pressure campaigns. In the case of North Korea, the US has pulled together one of the largest international efforts to sanction North Korea and bring them to the table. With Iran, the US has regained previously lost leverage through sanctions that penalize banks that facilitate international Iranian oil purchases. Decreased revenue has resulted in fewer funds to support the Houthis, Hezbollah, Iraqi Shia militias, and Hamas. Through persistent diplomacy and public messaging, the U.S. has convinced allies to designate Hezbollah in its entirety as a terrorist organization. We have regained military deterrence by defending the waters around the Persian Gulf and strengthening the defensive and cyber capabilities of regional allies. And finally, on our list of threats, we turn, last but not least, to international terrorism. Um, while the department talks, department talks frequently about shifting to a great power competition posture, there is no doubt that we will need to stay in the fight against ISIS, if anything, because ISIS has not given up its goal of establishing a caliphate. The coalition to defeat ISIS, comprising 79 members, has successfully provided training, funding, and technical assistance to local forces on the ground. Still, daunting challenges remain, including frequent attacks by US, um, sorry, frequent attacks on US personnel by Iran-backed militias, ISIS's covert attempts to regroup, and an intransigent political landscape in Iraq and Syria that frequently fuels local grievances. Finally, while most of the US government's focus since 2014 has been on ISIS, Al-Qaeda continues to pose an ever larger global threat as it integrates itself locally across the Sahel, the Horn of Africa, Syria, and South Asia. Well, if those uh, challenges sound daunting, uh, hopefully I can comfort you by turning slightly to um, some of the, the more positive news. So, now that I've walked through those external challenges, um, I'm going to turn to my colleague, Shanish, who will discuss potential opportunities that will help us deter these threats. Um, and then she will, I think, turn it one more time to our third colleague, uh, Colonel Shaun. Thank you, Martha. Um, and thank you uh, once again to the Tennessee World Affairs Council for having me here today. Um, and as Martha mentioned, I will uh, shed some positive light on you, where the US is going um, as far as our foreign policy direction is concerned um, in regards to um, highlighting you know, the strengths of um, 
our alliances. So our greatest source of uh, strength is our alliances. One former US diplomat described our alliances as our comparative advantage vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China. Our alliances are based on a deeply shared values and similar outlook toward the world. Russia and China partners are short-lived and purely strategic. Given the concerns we've laid out about China and the CCP's malign behavior, Secretary Pompeo has placed great importance on an Indo-Pacific strategy that builds up our friends to counterbalance China in Eurasia. This strategy envisions a free region composed of secure sovereign states, trading freely with each other along international principles of fair and open exchange. In this strategy, we see a major role for India as a large and powerful democracy, as well as Japan, Australia, South Korea, and Taiwan. We provide military equipment and support to a variety of allies, including Taiwan. While we continue to strengthen our bilateral relations in the Indo-Pacific, it is also vital that these countries work more closely with one another. Smaller South Asian countries such as Thailand and the Philippines also have their place in the Indo-Pacific strategy, particularly because they are more vulnerable to predatory Chinese investment and military intimidation. ASEAN is the largest destination for US foreign direct investment. The new BUILD Act and its development uh, finance corporation will lead the way in improving market access and leveling the playing field for US businesses. Rather than the China model of state-directed investment, which frequently comes with strings attached, the US seeks to foster great, greater um, private sector op opportunities throughout the region. And now I'll turn on to uh, you know, an area of my expertise, which is Europe. Um, Europe continues to be the region that most closely shares US values and interests and is a vital partner facing the next decade's national security threats. China has used targeted financial investment to gain political influence over, our, over uh, European governments. However, our allies are seeing the threat more clearly and realistically in light of recent events, such as, um, you know, we know that uh, Europe now understands that, you know, they have to be more careful uh, not to allow adversaries to divide the alliance or use misinformation to drive a wedge between us. Uh, Secretary, has, Secretary Pompeo has announced a strategic dialogue with the European Union concerning China. This is very important. The major democracies will be stronger in facing communist China if we stand together. However, we should be aware that some European countries have shown signs of prioritizing the business opportunities in China over attention to human rights and indeed as an alternative to the Atlantic Alliance. We should work against Europe pivot to Asia if it means a rejection of the West. This will be an ongoing challenge. And next we'll turn to NATO, which remains a, which is basically a, a key indicator of our, the US's uh, commitment to the Atlantic and the Europeans' commitment to the transatlantic relationship and security. Um, but one area that we have been stressing uh, to our NATO allies is burden sharing. Burden sharing within the alliance is one of the key factors to lowering tensions over the, nature, over the future of NATO. You already know that this is a key issue. I'm sure many of you have already heard that, you know, President Trump sees, that, sees this as an important area uh, and this position will definitely not change um, even if there is a new election, even if there is a new uh, president come um, November 3rd. Uh, we will also need to work with our European allies 
to secure critical infrastructure, particularly energy security. This will continue to present challenges over the next decade, particularly in the contested areas of the Arctic, the three seas area of the Central Europe between the Baltic, Black, and Adriatic Seas and the Eastern Mediterranean. In all three regions, China and Russia seeks to purchase or build energy, transportation, or digital infrastructure, which will give them leverage over these countries. And so with that said, uh, I gave a little bit more of a positive view, but still we uh, laid out some challenges there um, with our European allies. And so now we'll turn it over to uh, Colonel Sham, who will discuss uh, Turkey, uh, Middle East, Africa, and Latin America. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks to the uh, World Affairs Council for having us. Uh, first of all, let me apologize. My uh, camera doesn't work properly, so the, the icon you see is taking the place of my face. Um, the, uh, let me start off talking about Turkey, as uh, since we left off with NATO. Turkey remains a vital, if complicated, NATO partner. Since uh, 2015, Turkey has pursued a more aggressive and independent foreign policy with a view towards staking out a path that is not dependent on any great power. Uh, that shift gained significant momentum following the 15 July 2016 coup attempt from uh, for which the Turkish government blames uh, uh, Fethullah Gulen, a former confidant of Erdogan currently living in exile in the US. Our refusal to extradite him, mainly due to the fact that the Turks have yet to present a compelling case for extradition, severely chilled our bilateral relationship. And this in turn has led, among other things, to a warming of relations with the Russians. However, uh, we should not misconstrue this as a change in orientation on the part of the Turks. Uh, there are obviously and continue to be numerous challenges in the bilateral relationship. Uh, we have issues with that with the Turks uh, with regard to our policy in Syria, with our issues, significant issues with the countries of the Eastern Med, uh, they've, they, they've purchased uh, equipment from the Russians, namely the S-400, which has uh, caused, uh, caused us to talk about activating the Countering uh, America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act. And they've detained uh, several U.S. citizens over the last several years. However, the Turks know that a functioning relationship with the U.S. remains in their interest. And moreover, Despite the outward appearances, their relationship with Russia is both tenuous and transactional. In both Syria and Libya, the Turks and the Russians find their international ambitions at odds, and they continue uh, to jockey for position in those countries. The challenge for the U.S. is to navigate this narrow path between maintaining the 50-year alliance and containing the more con counterproductive impulses of the Turkish government. In the Middle East, we continue to work uh, closely with partners to counter uh, ter uh, terrorist organizations, secure energy resources, and achieve greater political stability. Our effort to defeat the Daesh physical caliphate has been successful, but the organization remains. We will need to rely on local forces who continue these efforts into the future. Moreover, we will continue to foster close relationships that help counter Iranian aggression and malign influence in the region and that of its proxies. Particularly, Israel, uh, the countries such as Israel, Jordan, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia have been instrumental in, in this cooperation. Indeed, the threat of Iran has brought uh, friendly nations in the Middle East closer together. The, the relationship between the Gulf and Israel has, has actually had an all-time high. 
Most recently, the Iraqi parliament voted for a prime minister who we believe will be an effective ally and leader. And we are hopeful that this development will lead to a new era of greater political representation, stability, and economic growth for Iraq. In Africa, we continue to support increased economic growth by working with some of our best friends in the region, particularly Ethiopia and Kenya. American companies are eager to invest in Africa, and we must harness the potential of Africa's tremendous youth population and drive Africa's economic growth and create real prosperity. In contrast to what the Chinese are attempting to do, which is essentially use a mercantilist model to exploit the, the continent and to their own ends. It is critical that we continue to advance peace and security across the continent. We do this by strengthening our defense and developing partnerships with African governments, as well as to regional security cooperation mechanisms. And finally, uh, Latin America uh, has been generally a source of positive relationships in recent years. The trend is likely to continue as many of the nations have made sharp turns toward democracy, uh, free enterprise, good government, away from dictatorship and socialism. And the corruption that's been endemic in that part of the region is also uh, waning. The choice has become clear to many countries in Latin America. You can look like Cuba, Venezuela, or Nicaragua, or you can choose to look like Colombia, Panama, or Mexico. As Secretary Pompeo has pointed out, there are more, there's more democratic cooperation in our hemisphere today than in any other point in our history. And part of that is due in large part to fruitful multilateral organizations such as the Organization of American States that has fostered increased political, political and economic freedoms. It has also led to improved cooperation through the hemisphere on issues such as terrorism, transnational crime, and drug trafficking, improved financial and regulatory transparency. The designation of Hezbollah uh, by Colombia and Argentina has made a major step to counter illicit actors in the region. Despite these positive efforts, Venezuela and Cuba continue to, be, to pose threats and be a challenge to the United States, propped up with illicit financial flows from Russia, Iran, and increasingly China. And then I'll turn it back over to Shanice for some concluding remarks. Okay, and so finally, you know, as we, you know, think about the value of our alliances, um, you know, we understand that, you know, the United, well, the United States understands that we have to look inward, especially because domestic issues are, you know, um, gaining a limelight in our, um, in the way that we do our foreign policy. Um, we have seen, we, we're aware of, you know, the, uh, the current situation and um, we are definitely uh, dedicated to uh, pursuing a more perfect union despite, you know, I mean, we recognize that the protests that have happened here in the United States are a demonstration of our commitment to democracy and we want to just continue to acknowledge that where we may fall short, we continue to strive to be a more perfect union. And this is what makes us different from authoritarian regimes and what makes our country so great. So thank you so much, Patrick and Dr. Schwartz for inviting us and we look forward to answering your questions. Okay, um, thank you so much for the presentations that you all gave. Um, let me start off by saying that um, I appreciated you know, the positions that you've had to take. Um, uh, I confess to a degree of skepticism about a number of the statements made in terms of the contradictions and sometimes between uh, certainly the rhetoric of the administration about allies, um, about relationships with Russia and China, 
uh, over the last four years so that there, I think, and I, I would imagine that many of our viewers here have some of that skepticism too. Let me just though start off with the biggest question that was certainly highlighted by Martha's presentation at the beginning, and that is the question of the United States' relationship with China. Um, this seems to have become now what many of us uh, with some historical sense think is a new Cold War. Is that where we are headed? Or are we, is, is this going to be, are, are we going to get into a situation of um, rivalry and conflict with China that will uh, force our allies to choose between us and China, that will divide the world in a, a manner similar to the Cold War? Um, what is the policy planning staff see as the next five to 10 years in the US-China relationship? And I offer that to anyone who wants to even uh, to take a stab at it. Maybe I'll jump in and then uh, Shawnee and B BJ, feel free to uh, follow up uh, with any additional thoughts. Um, I mean, it's, it's really interesting that you raise uh, the Cold War. I think there's been a lot of thinking about the Cold War um, as a model and as an interesting historical comparison. Um, I think that you'll hear this from other folks in the administration within the department as well as other, other agencies. Um, I think that it's fair to say that there are parallels, but there are also differences. So um, I think one major difference would be that in the Cold War, um, I know Dr. Schwartz, you're a professor of, of European history, and we've talked a little bit about Europe, but um, I think the role of Europe is, is very interesting in, if you were to kind of compare today's relations with China versus the U.S. relations with the Soviet Union. At that time, Europe kind of was stuck in the middle. Um, and I think that there was a lot of fear that both the military as well as the nuclear um, and the ideological uh, components of this, um, of this conflict were going to play out somehow in Europe, particularly centering around um, Berlin. I think compared to today, I wouldn't say it has this dimension where Europe is stuck in the middle between these two poles. Um, this is much more of a global um, challenge, and I think it involves everyone on the globe. And beyond that, it's much less of a um, arms buildup. It's, it takes this, this competition is taking place in a number of different um, channels. So there's the diplomatic component, there's the information. I think, I think information is going to be a really big part of what we're going to see in the next decade. Um, misinformation, utilizing information in strategic ways. Um, uh, there's the financial component, um, tariffs and trade, IP theft. Um, so it's just much more complex, I think, um, than, than kind of the more simplistic U.S. versus Soviet Union arms buildup uh, paradigm. Um, I think the one interesting comparison, though, is the ideological um, component of all of this. Um, and this is something I've heard Assistant Secretary Stilwell, um, who's the EAP Assistant Secretary, talk about a little bit. He said um, that, um, I think, in response to a question once about competition, we're talking about competition with China, you know, what are we competing for or over? Um, and his answer was that actually this competition is ideological, um, that we are offering or we're um, competing with our version, our, our model of governance, which is liberal democracy. And China is offering something else, which is a state-led uh, economy. Um, and so I think um, if we're kind of have these two models of governance that we're, that we're kind of 
um, trying to convince the world to, to use, I think we really do want Europe um, on our side, um, embracing liberal democracy. And I think that's, that's one thing that they really can um, embrace with us. So I guess with that, I might hand it off to my colleagues. Sanif, do you want to comment on that one? No, I think I'll hand that one over to BJ. <laughs> yes. What I'll say on that is I'll, I'll uh, amplify what Martha said. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, there is, a, I believe, a fundamental difference between the Cold War that uh, most of us who are old enough to remember it experienced uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s and what we are seeing now. And, and one of the fundamental differences is, well, we certainly have a number of issues with the Chinese in terms of uh, their theft of international property, their, their trade practices, and as Martha said, their ideology. The United States is not seeking to, to block or stop China's development. We sought to contain uh, the spread of Soviet Union and Soviet communism throughout the world as part of the Cold War. We're not trying to stop China from, from expanding and, and, and uh, developing their economy. Indeed, uh, the developing the economy of China is, I think, in everyone's interest. It would, it's in everyone's interest to see, uh, to see more Chinese prosperous and, and happy because when, when you have a, a burgeoning, uh, for lack of a better term, middle class in a country, that's when you tend to see a country moderate its views. So I think that, the, that there's a little bit of a difference, and I, I think that calling it a Cold War is, is overstating uh, the level of competition. Doesn't mean we don't have challenges, doesn't mean we don't need, uh, to, we don't need to be prepared uh, to counter them when they, are, when they use their influence in a uh, counterproductive way, such as they have uh, with respect to how they've handled uh, the coronavirus and the misinformation that they've put out uh, with regard to uh, the spread of the pandemic. Um, connected to that, of course, is that the Cold War, at least at its early stage, involved the United States against Russia and China as allies, uh, the Sino-Soviet bloc, as it was known. It seems to me that in a way, from Martha's presentation, the sense that Russia and China are both threats to American interests also raises the question of whether the two of them, we may be in the position of having or forcing or encouraging the two to cooperate more against the United States. And I'd like to know what uh, you see in terms of the relationship with Russia, and this may go also to Shanish about Europeans uh, having this mixed view of Russia where Germany has set up the Nord Stream project at the same time as uh, we're sanctioning Russia for its occupation of uh, Crimea. And whether um, also Russia, of course, still maintains the capacity to destroy the United States with nuclear weapons and whether indeed by withdrawing from the treaties, as you mentioned, we're also in a situation where we might get a new nuclear arms race with Russia at the same time we're trying to compete with China. And it does seem to me that this, uh, and not to borrow from Henry Kissinger on this, but one of the goals of triangular diplomacy was the idea of playing the two off. And it seems like the way you've described it is we're pushing the two together and they're both rivalry to the United States. Well, um, in terms of Russia, um, we've, I mean, we, we look at, first we look at uh, China sort of as a strategic um, competitor. And of course, with Russia, um, it's really up to Russia to sort of reach out and um, improve the relationship 
um, with the United States. I mean, Russia has demonstrated um, a lack of responsibility for its actions um, and continues to do so and is solely responsible for its isolation um, from the West. I mean, we want to seek an improved relationship with Russia, but I mean, the deterioration of European security environment, of course, has been entirely due to Russian actions. Um, you know, it's been six years now since Russia has actually invaded, um, um, attempted to annex, uh, not invade, but attempted to annex uh, Crimea. And uh, we have underscored that we will never recognize uh, um, Russia's claims over sovereignty over the, over the peninsula. Um, as far as we're concerned, Crimea is uh, Ukraine. Um, however, you know, we will continue to maintain sanctions against Russia's aggressive actions. Um, and we want Russia to continue to, we want Russia to fully commit to its, um, to all the terms in the Minsk Agreement. Um, but we, un we understand that China is a strategic competitor, but Russia is just becoming much more aggressive now. And we want the NATO alliance, I mean, to continue to shore up its commitments to defense, and, and that includes Germany, um, in order to um, meet the challenges of tomorrow, as well as to continue to meet the challenges of Russian aggression. Um, Russia is doing all sorts of things. I mean, becoming more aggressive in the Arctic. Um, Russia is um, spreading disinformation, uh, using uh, malicious cyber activities, um, energy monopolization, all these things. And so we see that there's a distinction because Russia at times or whatever seems like sort of like the uh, the country that just kind of wants to sow mischief everywhere, whereas, <laughs> and kind of look at things, and we kind of look at Russia sort of like uh, not necessarily being very strategic in its approach and how it's dealing with us. Um, but, but China, we understand that there is um, a strategic ally, a, I mean, a strategic competitor, one who is looking at, you know, um, using its financial resources to um, gain political influence over our allies and so forth. So we take China, I would say we would take China a little bit more seriously, but we also um, recognize the Russia threat. But do you see the two cooperating? We don't see the two, we don't really see the two cooperating per se, but we understand that there are some interests that are aligned. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, can I ask a question of Colonel Shaw um, to ask about the Middle East? Mm -hmm. um, if we could. Um, I, uh, earlier in the year, um, for a brief period of time, it looked like the United States and Iran might actually go into war. Um, there was, of course, the uh, killing of the American soldier by uh, Iranian proxies in Iraq, and then our reprisal um, of killing of uh, the Iranian commander Soleimani, and things got very, very tense. Um, what is uh, the current status, you might say? Are the Iranians are the Iranians in the position of trying to wait out this administration, effectively believing that the Iranian nuclear deal can be revived? Um, and is this a case where the United States has not been able to make its case uh, for isolating Iran uh, to the rest of the world convincingly? And um, is maximum pressure work working in that sense? So uh, 
I can't pretend to speak uh, to, to describe what the Iranians think or, or how they're uh, planning to, uh, to deal with all of this. Um, what I would say is, is that uh, what we have seen over the course of the last six months is, is we have seen that the, after an initial uh, spat of, of, uh, of reprisals, the Iranians have sort of backed off and withdrawn, with, uh, withdrawn inward. Now, part of that can be attributed to the fact that they've been hit fairly severely by the by a, the a, a coronavirus and their somewhat inept attempts to deal with it, uh, and so they're they're uh, dealing with that. Uh, however, I think that what we've seen is is that the uh, the IRGC uh, in particular, uh, the the loss of Soleimani was was a pretty big blow, um, and the folks that have stepped up in his stead do not have. Uh, the same uh, skill set that he brought to the table, uh, and I'm not saying that in, in, as, a, as an admirer, simply as a, uh, you know, as a looking at, an, as, at a potential enemy combatant and saying, this guy brought some things to the table. He, he, was, uh, he was a skilled um, fomenter of, of trouble, let's put it that way. Um, he, and so, and, and I don't think they've been able to replicate that ability yet. That does not mean uh, that they don't. Um, you know, a lot of times people will remind everyone that uh, that uh, Iranians are well-known chess players, uh, and chess is a long game, and they make several moves uh, that don't seem to make sense to you until they make that final move that puts you in checkmate. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's hard to tell right now where they are because they're they're dealing with multiple challenges on multiple fronts. But I don't think that they're they're out of the game, and I don't think that they're waiting us out. Um, I think that they understand uh, that that the United States is serious about preventing them from having nuclear weapons, and that we we are prepared. And we have said, and Secretary Pompeo has said on numerous occasions that we're prepared to use all of our diplomatic options uh, to to ensure one that the UN arms embargo stays in place, and are prepared to talk when they're ready to talk, when they're ready to be serious about ending their nuclear program uh, for real and their malign activities in the region, we're ready to talk. Over. Um, uh, I want to switch, the, switch gears a little bit to ask a more broad question about policy planning staff and some of the issues that many Americans are concerned with that really transcend uh, borders, that transcend. Um, Martha in her presentation stressed the emphasis on America first and the, the role of national states. But there is indeed, of course, problems that really do transcend national states. Climate change and the pandemic have brought those home. And I'm wondering, how does the policy planning staff see the engagement of the United States over the next five to 10 years in dealing with uh, more global foreign policy challenges, um, uh, ones that really do require a great deal of thinking about what the future might hold? I, I open that one. There. Maybe Martha, if you want to want to take that one, or or Shanish. Sure. Um, global challenge. I mean, so you know, it's funny. Um, I think we know generally what the global challenges are likely to be. In fact, uh, if you read the national security strategy, pandemics um, shows up. Pandemic preparedness is like in the second paragraph. Um, so I think we have a sense of of what we need to do to prepare. 
I think the challenge is always investing um, in readiness across the board um, and um, putting our, our energy, bureaucratic energy, um, diplomatic energy um, into, into preparedness. Um, but I guess, you know, kind of the theme of our, of our talk, um, and I think it's really true, certainly I haven't been at the State Department um, as long as Shanish, uh, uh, Colonel Sean is, is a military guy through and through, but I mean, I think it's safe to say that at State Department, um, it, it's really true that um, our relationships are the thing that are, that are going to pull us through any challenge, um, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's climate change, whether it's, um, you know, international terrorism, um, cyber campaigns. Um, I mean, I think these are kind of all the things that we know are on the horizon, um, but really the, the best solution is close relationships, strong alliances, um, having these groupings that are really um, functional, such as NATO, um, that is our kind of our best um, grouping to deter Russia, or maybe this new grouping, the D10, the Democracies 10, that is sort of Europe plus Japan um, and Australia and a couple others. Um, uh, so I, I really think that fostering these relationships is going to be the key um, and sort of how exactly we're going to work together, what mechanisms we're going to use, um, you know, how we can strategically stockpile equipment um, to prepare for the future, what, you know, agreement are we going to, to reach on climate change. Um, you know, how exactly we're going to get there is, is not exactly clear to me, but I, but I am sure that um, the answer will lie in, in these relationships. And, and may I add, I mean, for yeah. over, it's, sometimes it's difficult to, <laughs> To determine like what you know we will be focusing on within the next five five to ten years but i could i could guarantee you that we don't anticipate you know our foreign policy positions changing on china's rise uh, containing iran um denuclearizing the korean peninsula and then of course uh, and then there's also the courtship of africa um trying to make it a much more prosperous subcontinent so those are the things that will be sort of the mainstays that we can see um um, remain just the, the things that will be re the foreign policy focuses that will remain within the um, policy planning staff. But yes, with the pandemic, you know, as Martha mentioned, um, uh, utilizing the NATO alliance um, will be, you know, even more crucial. Our alliances in general, in order to address, um, you know, the long term um, effects of the pandemic, um, um, we're looking at, you know, well, for example, like how will uh, countries, um, how will this imp impact um, international borders? Of, you know, what will happen to the Schengen arrangement going forward? Uh, things like that, looking at um, the global distribution of the supply chain and global trade. Um, of course, this will all need greater um, allied responses and a greater sharing of resources and so forth. So uh, there's a lot that the policy planning staff has to be working on um, <laughs> within the next coming uh, um, four months or, or five to 10 years or so. Um, BJ, do you have any, any uh, to add to that? Well, I think what I would add to that is, is I mean, obviously it's difficult and, and most of us, uh, I don't think, while the pandemic was certainly in the national security strategy, and we certainly uh, in the U.S. government over the years have talked about how we would respond to a pandemic, I don't think anyone uh, could have anticipated the broad and far-reaching effects that we are now seeing. And I'm not sure we have yet seen 
what the broad and far-reaching effects of this is going to be at, uh, when hopefully it will soon uh, begin to wane. Uh, but I think the broader, if I were to sort of encapsulate what the, what the future for U.S. foreign policy is, regardless really of, of the, the eddies and currents of international relations and, and such, is what the United States has always done and what the United States will continue to do is encourage countries and, and partners and adversaries to behave responsibly. Uh, when, you hear, when you listen to the secretary, uh, oftentimes what you hear him talking about is you hear him talking about encouraging countries to be responsible members of the international community. We want Iran to, to become a responsible member of the international community. It's, it's about changing their behavior, not about changing their regime. We want China to behave as a responsible trading partner and a responsible member of the international community. And we want Russia to stop being an agent of chaos and come back to being a, a responsible member of the international community. Mm -hmm. uh, so if I were to say what our, our long-term policy is, it's about encouraging responsibility. Hey, Tom, I don't want to ring the, the bell here, but uh, I, I, I understand. Uh, if we, I, I, we, yeah. we could uh, turn to a couple of questions from uh, from sure. our our viewers. Uh, let me start with Campbell Lehman. Uh, and Campbell is uh, one of our high school students here. She's a Tennessee Global Scholar, has been participating in our Academic WorldQuest competition. And, uh, and Campbell uh, writes uh, that uh, China has been putting on an emphasis on military expansion in the Pacific, especially in the maritime region. How do you think China's recent increase in its aggressive posture towards other states will affect the US and Japan's military alliance? I realize nobody's an Asia Pacific hand uh, in in the crowd here, but okay, Martha, over to you. Oh, I said we have a military hand. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. I was, uh, kindly handing it to uh, Colonel Sham. <laughs> Colonel Sham, the U.S. Uh, Japan Military Alliance. Uh, you know, we've we've uh, signed a, an agreement that we will come to Japan's defense. China has some claims to. Uh, Japan uh, islands and territorial waters. Uh, China has been increasingly aggressive in the maritime environment. Uh, any any comment on uh, how that might impact uh, the steadfastness of the alliance or our arrangement? Well, um, you know, my first assignment was in uh, on the Korean Peninsula, so I have tiny little bit of experience in uh, in the in the Pacific. Um, the I think that the the you know any aggressive action by the Chinese is only going to drive uh, uh, allies closer to one another. Uh, the Japanese understand uh, what the neighborhood that they live in, and they understand uh, the importance of having the United States uh, as an ally. And I actually think that goes, I think it goes beyond Japan, if I'm going to be honest about it. I think if you look around the region, uh, most of the countries um, are, are, are beginning to recognize that, uh, that they need, they need partners, they need friends. They don't need they don't need patrons and they don't need uh, um, hegemons. What they need are partners. Uh, even even a, an old adversary, Vietnam, uh, has, has increasingly turned to the United States uh, for assistance in dealing with a very, very aggressive neighbor uh, in the Chinese. So I, I, I have to believe uh, that that's only going to drive us uh, closer together. And, and I know that, that there, there, you know, there's plenty of stuff about we, we've had some issues. Uh, both on the Korean Peninsula and with the Japanese in terms of burden sharing and things like that. 
those are things that can be worked out. At the end of the day, uh, they know, uh, we, we know that we need each other uh, in order, to, uh, in order to, to counter some of the less productive behavior uh, of, of the Chinese. Uh, Colonel, thanks for, thanks for that. Another um, another question in your wheelhouse with your experience in the Middle East. Uh, this comes from uh, our good friend Nazad Harami, who is, <clears throat> excuse me, director of the Saladin Center here in Nashville. Uh, he represents uh, the Kurdish community, and as you may or may not know, that uh, Nashville has the largest Kurdish population in the United States. It was a polling place for the first elections uh, after uh, after the 2003 transition of power. Uh, Nazad uh, writes, um, he talks about some of the mistakes that the United States has made in uh, the Middle East, Iraq, Syria, uh, and so forth, uh, which has empowered uh, Russia and Iran, leaving the Kurds alone in Syria, and now also the Libya issue. And he asks, are there any uh, plans to review the policy regarding Kurdistan, and uh, what specifically is the U.S. policy towards Kurds in Iraq? And he is uh, from Kurdistan. Okay, well, uh, yeah, thank you for the question. Um, what I would say, uh, well, first of all, um, it, it, I think it's slightly, uh, it's a little more nuanced than that. We have not left the Kurds alone in Syria. We continue uh, to work with the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces in our uh, counter uh, Daesh campaign. Um, and so, and, and we continue to support uh, a situation where ever, where all of the peoples in in Syria and Iraq uh, are are able to to live peacefully and prosperously. Um, as far as the Kurds in Iraq are concerned, you know the the Kurdish regional government has been one of the major success stories within Iraq, and I think the uh, the U.S. policy is to continue to is to see that success continue uh, within uh, the boundaries of a uh, sovereign Iraq. Uh, and, and the Kurdish regional government, uh, you know, they had a brief uh, thing where they tried to, uh, where they, there was a referendum a few years back where they wanted to discuss independence. But I, I think they found that they're that they're better better off as a part of and continue to to uh, work with Iraq. And that you know, the, the U.S. The U.S. is a firm believer that the the Iraq should be uh, a single country with all of its very prosperous parts working well together. Over. Okay. Oh, if I may, I would just chime in to say that, um, you know, earlier this year, um, actually, sorry, it was last fall, um, there was a lot of concern about Turkey and their, you know, incursion into to Northeast Syria. Um, State Department sprang into action. Um, there were uh, October 17th uh, discussions, and it seems like the scenario sort of turned out um, as we could have hoped in that Turkey did not continue onward into Syria. Um, it has, uh, it didn't uh, storm the SDF-run prisons that currently hold uh, the ISIS um, remnants from Syria. So, um, generally speaking, and, and the U.S. has maintained its presence in northeast Syria. So, um, things are sort of status quo. The U.S. is still standing by its allies, the SDF. Um, the YPG, and um, we've had a lot of success with that model, and so um, you know, hopefully, we'll we'll be continuing the steady state of, uh, of of backing our allies in Northeast Syria for for the future. 
Great. Let me bundle a couple of questions together by uh, Ambassador Charles Bowers, who uh, is on our board here at the Tennessee World Affairs Council and is uh, part of our news review every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Uh, he uh, was ambassador to Bolivia and has a question about Latin America. Uh, basically, uh, not much attention by the Trump administration to Latin America. Uh, is, uh, is that kind of a forgotten part of the uh, of the hemisphere and he also asks um, if you are if, if any of you are foreign service officers if not why are they not involved in the policy planning process uh, he uh, I don't want to date the ambassador but he says he remembers fondly the contributions to US policy by George Kennan um, I'm not a foreign service officer um, <laughs> I'm civil service um, and as far as um, Latin America is not in my bailiwick, but um, I do know that, that the Trump administration is definitely, um, you know, a, a committed partner um, to countries in uh, the Western Hemisphere, um, in particular Latin America. And um, we are trying to our best to deepen and expand our security cooperation and economic partnerships uh, with um, Mexico in particular. Um, we stand with um, the Venezuelan interim president Guaido and we are trying to restore democracy there. Um, we're pressuring uh, the um, um, government in Nicaragua to uh, restore its democracy and trying to stem um, you know, illegal immigration. So there's a lot of stuff. There's there are a lot of things that um, the Trump administration is doing in uh, in Latin America, and so it has not been um, neglected. Martha, can you give us maybe a thirty second difference between foreign service officers and civil service? <laughs> Me? Uh, well, um... <laughs> just so our audience understands the distinction there. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, uh, um, and, and Shani, you, you know, you've had a, quite a lot of experience at the department. So, please also chime in here. But I would just say, I, I'm also civil service. Um, I would say foreign service officers come in um, through a particular process. They take an exam, um, and they are selected by a panel, um, and then they become foreign service officers, uh, where you commit to doing rotations throughout your career at different uh, embassies abroad. Civil servants, um, such as myself and Shanish, um, we work at the department, although there are, um, when I say the department, I mean um, Harry S. Truman Building, Maine State in Washington, D.C., although there are plenty of opportunities to do what we call TDYs, so to do short-term assignments for a couple months overseas. So people would most uh, be familiar with seeing a foreign service officer at a consular or an embassy uh, abroad. Yes, yes. So a foreign service officer will be posted overseas. They trap. They are um, posted overseas every two years. Uh, they take an oral exam. Civil service, we take an exam. We don't, we, don't, we don't take an exam, but we apply for a job through um, a government website called USA Jobs. We are placed in different uh, categories, uh, professional series. I, myself, am a foreign affairs officer, um, but that's different from a foreign service officer, meaning that I focus on a particular region or a particular function and, rem and remain in Washington, but have the opportunity to travel every so often. So that's a great thing too. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I would also just say to the ambassador's question, we have a number of foreign service officers um, on the policy planning team. <laughs> Actually, the policy planning team is one of the most diverse um, uh, in terms of career tracks within the department. It's one of the most uh, diverse offices. We have folks from all over, folks from think tanks, foreign service officers, civil service officers, 
Um, so it's a, it's a really great team to be And even the United States Army. And even the United States Army. Yes, we have advisors, military advisors like Colonel Sean, but our office is um, primarily comprised of uh, political uh, appointees. Okay. Who are aligned with the administration. Um, so that way we are focused on what the administration is doing, the administration foreign policy goals and so forth. Um, and of course, everyone is because if you are a U US government employee, you are working to further um, the administration in the most positive way. So yes. One, one final question, we're, we're kind of long on time here and uh, the questions don't get any easier at the end. Uh, this is uh, from Seth Emerson and, and he asks about um, uh, after the November election, depending on who the next uh, uh, resident of the White House uh, might be, there might be some uh, fence mending required in our bilateral and multilateral relationships. And, you know, we've, we've seen uh, examples, Angela Merkel said that uh, the Europeans are going to have to go go it alone now, and that, I think that was 2017. Macron said NATO is, is brain dead. So there, there has been criticism of America's uh, uh, steadfastness with its uh, multilateral uh, relationships and institutions. Any, any thought in the policy planning arena? Uh, how to look towards the um, uh, sustainability of those relationships in the future. I'll, I'll try to put it as delicately as I can. Don't all answer at once. <laughs> I would just say, uh, you know, that question is a very Eurocentric question. And as I discussed, you know, I love Eurocentric questions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we have other allies beyond Angela Merkel and Macron. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and these relationships are much more, um, you know, much less, I suppose, along the spectrum of our domestic political um, debate. So you might be surprised, actually, um, when I've been on travel in the Middle East, or are the other parts of the world, um, you know, I hear people with uh, spouting, you know, their love of this administration and these great relationships that have been that have been fostered. So, um, so I wouldn't put it quite in that sort of black and white um, kind of Eurocentric terms. Um, that said, you know, I had a professor once who said in the there was a lot of criticism uh, or there was a perception that uh, transatlantic relations were quite poor in the, during the Bush administration, um, but that beyond sort of the political dialogue that you might see on TV. Um, government to government relations were were incredibly strong, um, stronger than ever. And I would say, you know, regardless of these swings in administration and sort of political waves, people come and go, um, government to government relations are, are really very strong, um, particularly with our European partners. So I don't anticipate that changing. And I think that's certainly been the case um, in this administration as well. Yeah, and even more recently, um, our European partners, you know, at first, you know, we were sort of sounding the, the alarm about China's rise, and now they've moved into the direction of understanding that, yes, China is posing um, an imminent threat and trying to divide the alliance. And so, as you see, certain policies, it, at first, it seems as if, you know, there's a diff that we're going in a different policy direction than, you know, our allies. But as you, you're seeing now, they're moving in the direction towards, you know, what the United States foreign policy is on certain issues. And so um, there's lots of cooperation um, on, you know, 
denuclearizing the, the Korean Peninsula. There's lots of cooperation. There's cooperation on Iran and other issues. So it's not as if, you know, there's going to be, I don't anticipate a lot of fence mending, uh, so to speak, but I do understand, you know, the question and I understand the concerns. Thank you. Great. Um, let me pose one final question that I have, and this uh, this is kind of selfish for World Affairs Councils. Why do you <laughs> why do you think people in our communities should know more about what's going on in the world? And th this might be the on the record portion of a testimonial on why why people should become members of World Affairs Councils. So so uh, please have at it. Why why is it important for people to know the world? Uh, I'll go ahead and take that quickly. Uh, I think there's two pieces to it. One is is that in a in the world we live in today, everything is in, interconnected. Uh, you can talk about the butterfly effect, uh, the, or, or whatever or whatever metaphor you want to use for it. But I, I think I think the last uh, six months have have proven in a very very striking and perhaps uh, almost terrifying way just how interconnected the world is as to how quickly, uh, you know, a, uh, a, an infectious disease that started uh, in a very small community in the middle of a, in, in the middle of a, right in the middle of a country and spread throughout the entire world uh, and is in basically in every country in the world. Uh, that's a stark and terrifying version, but there's also positive versions to that. Ideas spread at the speed of light. Um, and, and so, it's absolutely critical that people understand what's going on in the world because what happens in some in in even the 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 most remote corners of the world has the potential to impact their lives. Um, and then the second thing is is it, it just it, it it broadens your perspective to understand uh, what life is like beyond uh, the 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 community you live in or the county you live in or the the state or even the nation that you live in. Um, I've, in, in my career, I've been to almost every corner of the world. Uh, and every time I've gone to a new place, I've learned something new and I've gained not only a perspective and an understanding of the people with whom I interacted, but I gained a new appreciation of home uh, every time. I, and, and, and each and every time it was nice to come back home. So I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Anyone else or was that the, the capstone? All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Tom, uh, any closing remarks that you'd like to make? Well, I'd just like to thank the participants for giving the uh, a, a, a positive perspective. I'll, I'll confess I remain skeptical about some of the <laughs> arguments made and uh, do think that they're, uh, they're putting the best face forward and I think I admire that. Um, but um, I, I, I hope I hope many of the positive things work out. Terrific. Well, I, I thank you uh, as well. Uh, thanks to our distinguished panelists, uh, Ms. Sims, Ms. Underwood, and Colonel Schaum. Uh, Colonel, thank you for your service in tough jobs and tough places. And thanks to our moderator, Professor Tom Schwartz. Uh, we're in a world in transition, and uh, thanks uh, to you, we all uh, now have a better concept of uh, where we are and where we may be headed. And thanks to our audience, uh, we hope uh, we are fulfilling our promise of bringing you the world through our webinars, podcasts, and education outreach programs. 
again, please consider joining the Tennessee World Affairs Council by going to tnwac.org. That's it for tonight. Thanks again, all. Please be safe and sound. <laughs>